Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Union Matters, NSGPU's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Holly Froughton, and I am joined here today by Jill Houlihan. Jill is partner of the law firm Pink Larkin, which specializes in labor and employment law, professional regulation, and pension and benefits law. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Today, we have invited you on to talk about a very hot topic, legal cannabis. Uh, I bet you guys have gotten quite a few calls about this issue lately. We certainly have, yes. So since cannabis was just legalized a few weeks ago, workplace policies on its use are still kind of unclear for many people. Some employers, like the military, uh, police, and airlines, have established rules restricting cannabis consumption, even in employees' off time. So generally, are employers allowed to control whether employees use cannabis in their off time? Uh, Generally speaking, no. They can't control your use in your personal time per se. The question is always whether there is a connection to the workplace, whether or not there's a connection to your employer's interests. So in the context of cannabis, what we're looking at is whether or not you are impaired at the point when you are coming into work. Okay. So kind of the same idea is if you used alcohol in your off time, you had to have to make sure that you're not impaired by the time you come to work in the morning. That's right. Principally, there's no, there's no difference in that sense, uh, just as you say, as you wouldn't come to work impaired by alcohol, you shouldn't come to work impaired by cannabis or any other, any other substance for that matter. Uh, the, the tricky issues with cannabis are that uh, we're not quite uh, sure how long impairment lasts. The general rule accepted by Health Canada is that if someone uses cannabis, uh, they can expect to experience the effects of that for up to 24 hours. Okay. So that's uh, a, a pretty good uh, benchmark, but there are also some studies to suggest that, especially for people who are regular users of cannabis, the effects can linger for uh, quite a long time after the 24-hour period. So, so that's sort of where it c- gets into the, the fuzzy area. Because cannabis builds up in the system, yeah. uh, if you are subject to testing, so for example, if, if there's an issue of um, alleged driving uh, while under the influence, and you're tested, you may, if you're a regular user of cannabis, have quite high levels of THC in your system, even though you may not have consumed cannabis within 24 hours. Oh, that's really interesting. So that's probably on the police side of things where it will be difficult to prove impairment for use? That's right. So, uh, you know, impairment, uh, you know, on, on the on the criminal side, um, you know, police have tools at their disposal that they can use to assess impairment as such. Uh, you know, whether or not there's a clear line between the level of THC in someone's system and impairment is a bit of an open question. Um, so for most employees, an employer doesn't really have much say in their recreational cannabis use. Um, but uh, when it comes to the idea of Im- impairment at work, perhaps, what can em- an employer do if they suspect an employee is high at work or impaired at work? So, of course, uh, this will always depend on the particular workplace, and you can look at your, your collective agreement and what workplace policies you may have. Uh, but generally speaking, if the employer suspects that someone is uh, intoxicated or, or under the influence of cannabis at work, you can expect that they are going to remove that person from the workplace initially and that there will be an investigation. Okay. Whether or not they are entitled to send that employee for testing uh, would depend on the rules in that workplace. 
So it would depend on your collective agreement or what the HR policy was in your workplace, depending on wh- where you work and if you're unionized or... That's right. So as a general rule, employers are not allowed to impose uh, random testing, except in some particular exceptions. Uh, and so what you're looking at in that type of situation is where there's reasonable cause to believe that someone is impaired. Uh, there is law to suggest that in those cases, the employer may be able to uh, request that the employee be be tested. Okay. Uh, and whether or not that's the case in, uh, in your workplace, that's the type of situation where you want to uh, speak to your local rep or speak to the union about that. Interesting. Um, and the other things you were talking about, like people who would be subject to maybe routine or random drug screenings, those are people who work in like more safety sensitive environments generally, like if you're working with heavy equipment or... Random testing, uh, in order for the employer to justify random testing, absent some uh, some agreement with the union or, or some policy that's in place that, that's been agreed to, as a general principle, even in a safety-sensitive workplace, even in workplaces where there are very critical safety interests, if you think of like a, a mine or yeah. or a workplace of that nature, even in those situations, uh, employers will generally only be entitled to implement random drug testing if there is a known problem in that workplace. So if there are um, known uh, incidents of employees coming to work uh, under the influence of drugs or alcohol, if there's a history of, of that being a problem in that workplace, and it's a safety-sensitive workplace, place, then the employer may be entitled to implement random testing. But just the fact that it's a safety-sensitive workplace would not ordinarily justify random drug testing. Okay, it doesn't make it inherent to that. Excellent. So it's my understanding that for our civil service members, their employer has developed a fitness to work guideline and a policy around impairing substances, which they plan to roll out soon, and there'll be some educational pieces around that. Um, so what does what does that mean for the average civil service member? Because, I, I mean, wouldn't they have already had a policy in place about alcohol? That's right. So fitness to work is a way of putting the onus in some ways back on the employee. So rather than adopting the types of policies you've seen in some police forces or, or the military where they're setting a particular time limit, for example, that, you know, you can't consume cannabis within a certain number of days, by establishing a fitness to work policy, then it's just up to the employee to make sure that for you, you are coming to work in a state where you're able to do your job and you're not impaired. And so, yes, uh, you know, in terms of alcohol, I think we all understand what it means uh, not to come to work under the influence of alcohol. Uh, in terms of cannabis, it is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit less clear. So, you know, for any particular person, whether they're coming into work impaired by cannabis or not, how long um, ago they might have consumed cannabis, how much, what strain, and, mm. and, and what method of consuming it, that can vary depending on the person in terms of, of the impact on that person. So, so for fitness to work, it's really a matter of, you know, for each individual employee, you need to make sure that whatever you've been doing, that at the point where you come to work, you're you're not impaired. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like there's more variables with the consumption of cannabis versus alcohol. So it's kind of knowing your own limit and knowing your response to it and being a good judge of of that. 
That's right. And, and, you know, and part of the issue is that with alcohol, because, of course, it's it's legal and been legal for a long time, there has been a lot of opportunities to study the impact of alcohol on people. And so there are pretty clear guidelines around blood alcohol limits and, you know, and depending on a person's size and how much alcohol they've consumed, we can predict what the impact on that person will be. Because cannabis has been illegal, it's been much more difficult to study the impacts on that. And so I think that what you will probably see uh, in the coming years, you'll see more uh, clear guidelines on people can use to educate themselves about, you know, if they're um, using cannabis, how they can expect the the impact to, to affect them. So like now we have very clear, for, for the police, for example, there's blood alcohol levels and you you can generally know rule of thumb how many drinks you could consume before you were considered to be impaired so that will probably in the years to come as they develop clear clear science or clear studies on this issue people will be able to better gauge that i think that's right you know the uh the criminal code was amended um as part of the legalization of of cannabis so uh this past june there are new uh particular limits in terms of thc that you can have in your system for driving under the influence so mm-hmm. Uh, those offenses start at two nanograms of THC per thousand milliliters of uh, blood. Uh, so there are clear limits in that sense, but what's not clear is at what point can you expect to have that level of THC yeah. in your system? How do you, most people that doesn't mean anything to them? Like That's how right, do you evaluate course. that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Can different government departments implement their own policies? for certain safety-sensitive positions. We talked a little bit about this earlier. So um, say correctional officers or sheriffs, could we see different areas implement different rules? So uh, again, you know, it always depends on the collective agreement. It depends on uh, the nature of the workplace. But you can expect that employers are going to be entitled to demand different uh, standards depending on the nature of the work that you're doing. You know, we always talk about um, when the employer's implementing a policy pursuant to its general management rights, that any policies it implements have to be reasonable. Oftentimes you have a requirement in the collective agreement if there are going to be those types of policies that uh, that you have consultation with the union about those, mm-hmm. that uh, that you have an opportunity to provide feedback on those and, and review those policies. But yes, as a general principle, if you are in a safety-sensitive workplace, and that can range from situations where you're operating, as you say, heavy heavy equipment or something where there's a very clear physical risk. But also you can look at healthcare where people are, uh, you know, working with patients and have to make sure that they're able to provide care in a safe way. And so, yes, you can expect that there are going to be um, different standards in, in those types of workplaces. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, from a legal perspective for you guys, it must this must be an interesting time for you. Have you heard any really interesting kind of uh, pieces of case law that are coming out of this or that, that you think will develop out of this? It is interesting. It's a, it's, it's a challenging time because there are uh, so few clear standards even in the law. And so what we're seeing uh, coming up to legalization and uh, and now, uh, you see a lot of uh, different approaches. And so even within labor law, you can pull uh, arbitration decisions where one arbitrator has said, you know, you can expect that 
um, this person should be able to consume cannabis within a certain period of time of going to work and that's okay. And then you look at another arbitration decision and the arbitrators come to the opposite conclusion. So, so it's challenging in that sense. It's, it's difficult to provide clear guidance uh, to our clients in some ways because you're sort of saying, you know, um, we can't say for certain how an arbitrator is going to deal with some of these issues. A lot of that is going to play out over the coming years and, uh, and we'll see sort of how how things unfold. Okay. There are still some gray areas on the issue of cannabis use, but for example, is there or what is the difference between medicinal cannabis use versus recreational cannabis use as it pertains to the workplace and policies? Medical cannabis use, the primary difference between that and the use of recreational cannabis is that if you are using uh, cannabis because of uh, a disability, and you have a medical authorization for that use, then you have protection under the Human Rights Act. So if you are using um, marijuana in in that context, your employer has a duty to accommodate that use up to the point of undue hardship. And so if you're looking at situations, for example, where someone is regularly using uh, medical cannabis, uh, for example, perhaps they're using it in the evening and coming to work the next morning, uh, the employer has to take a much more careful look at at that issue for that employee. So it wouldn't be enough just to say, we're instituting a blanket policy. You can't consume cannabis within 24 hours of coming to work. They can't do that with someone who's using it for, um, for a disability. You have to look at that person's individual circumstances, and you have to assess whether or not you can accommodate that usage up to the point of undue hardship. Mm-hmm. There are no such protections if it's recreational cannabis. Okay, that makes sense. Um, So the NSGU represents a wide range of workers. One of the groups that we represent are home care workers who go into clients' homes to provide care. So their workplace is effectively someone else's home. Um, We have heard some concerns from these members, mainly surrounding issues of secondhand smoke and odor from clients using and growing plants in their homes. So our occupational health and safety person here uh, raised the question of, does the Smoke-Free Workplaces Act cover residences as it applies to cannabis? So the Smoke-Free Places Act does not apply to private residences. Oh, okay. So even if that is, in effect, your workplace, those uh, private residences are expressly excluded from the legislation. So if it's your own home, you're allowed to smoke cigarettes, just as you'd be allowed to now smoke cannabis. Uh, But all of that said, from an occupational health point of view, your employer has a duty to provide you with a safe workplace. And so if you are someone who has to go into other people's homes as part of your job, you can expect that if there are concerns around certainly secondhand smoke, that those are issues you should be raising uh, with your supervisor or with your manager uh, and possibly with your union if you can't find a satisfactory resolution. uh, Because for the most part, it's very unlikely that some of those concerns can't be at least reduced. Mm -hmm. You know, even if someone has to use uh, medical cannabis in their own home, and even if they have to smoke that as part of, you know, the form of cannabis they've been authorized to use, it would be very unlikely that they would be required to use it at the exact point when their home care worker is visiting them. And so, you know, you can request things like um, that the person not consume it while you're there, that other people in the home not consume it while you're there, uh, that the room be aired out if possible. Those are the types of things that 
uh, you could raise probably not directly with the client, but through your supervisor, manager, through the union to try to uh, reduce any possible effects that you're experiencing. And especially the concern uh, in terms of cannabis around secondhand smoke, depending on uh, the amount and, and the length of exposures, it's not clear whether or not that could actually um, result in you having THC of some small level in your own system. And so if you're driving and you're visiting clients and you've been exposed to secondhand um, cannabis smoke, uh, you want to be careful about what position you're being put in. That's very interesting. I hadn't considered that aspect of it. So basically the employer has a duty to help mitigate some of these concerns. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, another question that's come from home care workers is what they should do, if anything, um, if one of their clients is clearly breaking the law when it comes to cannabis. So if they went into a client's home and it was pretty clear that there was like a grow up of 20 plants instead of the legal four, um, should they report them? What should, what should they do? I would say that the, the, the concern, uh, is really about your safety in the workplace. And so if you have a client who is engaged in illegal activity, that's an issue that could potentially compromise your safety in dealing with that client. And so that's an issue that you should also bring to the attention of a supervisor, a manager, uh, the union, because you don't want to be put in a situation where you are in a home where there's illegal activity going on. Uh, You have to be very careful of course, around uh, client confidentiality. I would say that it's very unlikely that you would ever uh, make the decision to report that directly to the police, for example, without uh, raising it with your supervisor, manager, union first. Mm-hmm. But I would say absolutely, you are, if you are putting yourself in a compromised position where you are either witnessing illegal activity going on or the fact that there is illegal activity going on creates some type of you know, risk of potential violence or other types of kind of uh, ancillary concerns, that those are things that absolutely management should be addressing. Okay. That seems reasonable as well. Um, So if people have questions, if their workplace hasn't instituted clear policies on recreational cannabis use and they still have questions about recreational cannabis and how it relates to their work, what's the best thing for them to do? I think it's always a good idea to uh, to talk to your your local rep or to, to the union to see if uh, there's some advice that they could provide. You know, oftentimes you can look at a policy and some aspects might not be clear to you, but those might be issues that the union has actually addressed with the employer and, and might be able to kind of fill you in on some of the, the background to, to those issues. Uh, of course, you can always raise those issues with a, a supervisor or a manager, but I, I can understand that some people may not want to flag themselves as someone who's possibly uh, using cannabis, even though it's legal now, there are still a lot of kind of cultural barriers uh, uh, dealing with cannabis use that are still probably going to persist for some time. Uh, but absolutely, that's an issue that you can go to the union and seek some advice about. Okay, excellent. Yeah, there is still a lot of stigma surrounding the use, and there probably will be for a long time to come. But it is a good idea for people to be informed before they make decisions. To absolutely. Yourself. Okay, excellent. That's all I had for you, Jill. Is there anything else that you would like to mention or talk about? I think that for the most part, people can treat uh, cannabis use the same way they would treat uh, alcohol or any other impairing drug. There, of course, has been a lot of attention on this issue because of the legalization. But for the most part, if people have been 
uh, going to work and, and not impaired in the past, you're going to continue to be able to do that in future. Um, it's always important to, to educate yourself and make sure if there are new policies, you're aware of them. But it's also important not to kind of become too nervous around, around the, the changes here because fundamentally, it's, it's the same law. I think we've even seen that in media reporting recently, like the, all the statistics on impaired driving um, regionally throughout throughout Nova Scotia, but also other parts of the country. Police are saying that they're not noticing a huge amount of change in impaired driving since October 17th. The, That's right. The big day. So. That's right. I think yeah. there, there are still concerns around people uh, with sort of open cannabis in their vehicle and the way that open alcohol is an issue. Uh, and so, of course, there has to be some education around, around those issues. But I think you're right. I think the idea that people are now... Uh, going to be consuming legal cannabis and driving in droves is certainly unlikely to to happen. And we're seeing that that hasn't happened yet. That's not the case so far, at least. That's right. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. It's been very interesting. So uh, thank you again. Thank you. uh, My pleasure. Maybe we'll have you on for another issue sometime. Hopefully so. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks.